Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Matt Barnes. Dr. Barnes works in a community or retail pharmacy. He's a graduate from the University of Pitt, so go Panthers. And the reason I asked him to be on the podcast today is he's a pharmacist who works in a position like me who actually recently recovered or is recovering from getting COVID-19. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Barnes. Uh, Thanks, Eric. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, the pleasure's all mine. I, I've known you for a long time. I think since you and I were both in college, uh, just from connections we have in pharmacy. And one, I'm glad that you're feeling better. And I'm glad that you were able Thank to you. share your experiences a little bit with the Facebook world. Can you elaborate on what started, how you went through the whole process of everything with COVID-19? Yeah, certainly. So my COVID journey, is you might want to say it, uh, started, so so I know it started, um, about a month ago, I was at the gym in the morning, and uh, after my first set, I felt pretty wiped out. So I thought, oh, you know, it's just, you know, I've worked out hard the previous day, I, you know, whatever. So, you know, I just powered through, and then my throat was a little bit sore, but it wasn't it wasn't that bad. Um, but by the end of my shift that day, I, I, which normally doesn't bother me, I was I was just exhausted. I mean, there was just some one of the one of my son's toys was in the way of my car getting in the garage. And instead of, you know, moving it, I just parked the car in the driveway and just left it. Um, I was just so wiped out. The next day, you know, my fatigue was worse. I had sore throat and more sinus pain and I had a bad cough. So, um, you know, it was standard symptoms of strep throat. And I've had that a handful of times before. So I went to uh, an urgent care right after work, got a strep test. And the rapid test came back negative, which is actually pretty fortunate because they advised me to get a COVID test on top of it. The test had come back positive. I'd have just hoped for a script for augmenting and been on my merry way. I went and got a uh, PCR test that same day at a different urgent care. Contacted my employer, told them, you know, I'm waiting on this. You know, I'm having some symptoms of COVID, but I had, you know, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. But then, you know, the next couple of days, like, you know, taking my dog for a walk, I had some shortness of breath, uh, just on exertion and a little bit of a worse cough. Not I what the achiness, the achiness and the fatigue kind of went away, but I also wasn't working, so that that could have had something to do with it as well. <laughs> the next day, you know, I, I was scheduled to work. Uh, the next day was a Friday. Uh, they gave me the day off till I could find out my COVID test results. I was able to get a rapid test, and that came back positive. But in addition, uh, fortunately, my strep cultures came back positive as well, so it started all on metin. Had my strep had that rapid strep culture not come back positive or come back positive, I'd have been, I wouldn't have gone and got the COVID test in all likelihood. But at that point, you know, my symptoms had started on a Tuesday. And so we wanted to, you know, looking at CDC guidelines and everything, we wanted to contact trace about 48 hours prior to my symptoms. So that presented a bit of a problem um, because that, that would have gone to Sunday, which was, my son had just turned a year old. We had neighbors over in the backyard, stayed distant from each other, but you know we still had they were still near us, so we had to call a lot of neighbors. Those were some very awkward phone calls and text messages. We also had his my son's baptism that weekend, so we had to call the church. I had gone out just 
walked into a pizza place, picked up a pizza and left, but I called them to be sure. And then I called my gym and my work. All in all, it was a bunch of awkward phone calls. Uh, The county health department ended up getting in touch with me and contacting all the same people as well. But it was, those were some very hard um, calls to make because had I not gotten in touch with them, you know, they could have been positive. They could have spread it to other people. But fortunately, nobody that we have been in touch with um, actually came back positive, not even um, my family and my wife's family. That That's the most fortunate thing about this. Whatever whatever happened with me, whatever got to me, ended with me. So I don't believe I spread it to anybody else. I'd, after the end of my quarantine, um, my symptoms improved enough where I could get back to work. So that was, uh, that was uh, over the span of about two weeks from when my symptoms, from when contact tracing began and everything to me uh, getting off work and then getting back to work. And you actually shared on Facebook, I remember, because we're, we're friends on there, which is where I saw you share yeah. this, was that you said, hey, you wouldn't wish this on basically anybody. You thought it was really horrible. Compared to like the flu or like anything else like that, how would you rate this compared to your, your past illnesses or experiences with being sick? Fortunately, I've never had the flu. I've been getting my flu shot for uh, 12 years now. Maybe to make it a little more comparable to some of us who haven't had the flu, as I mentioned, I have a one-year-old. The fatigue from raising a baby from a newborn to being one-year-old doesn't compare to the fatigue that um, I had with COVID. I was just completely wiped out. Yeah, and as someone who obviously, as some of the listeners know, has a 10-month-old, so about the same age as you have, those first three months really do take an absolute toll on you. And we're both saying this as husbands. We know it's harder for the wives who have to go through everything with uh, with birthing to breastfeeding and everything else. We know that. So you're saying that this is worse than even that, which is really stating something because I remember in some of those moments, you're just – and I'm I'm a marathon runner, and I'm somebody who's usually never tired. I've never been so tired in my life as that. Then throwing aches and shortness of breath and everything else with it. So that's really saying something. Yeah, and you know my you know my wife and I split the middle of the night wake ups with our son. You know sometimes we can you know get an under interrupted four or six hour stretch, but even still, just that just that stress of raising a newborn. You know I've run marathons too, and. Obviously, those days are far behind me, um, but it's just exhausting. You know, a marathon is one thing, but this is just like, you know, you're, it's one, it's running a marathon every single day, just that exhaustion of dealing with the newborn. And this, this COVID just, you know, it felt like I had gone like way harder at the gym than I normally do, but for days on end. Yeah. And I think that's a good analogy for what some people who are our age in good health, what it feels like. And, you know, we're people in good health. We don't have any real, you know, I don't have any autoimmune disorders or anything like that, not high risk for it, but I'd be in the exact same category you are, somebody who works retail pharmacy. And I think that's what's telling about it is it's hitting people like us that bad. What can it do to other people? And, you know, I've got some notes here from some other pharmacists and just kind of looking at my Facebook messages, there's some crazy ones with, how people have experienced this. There's people who go from kind of like what you had. That's pretty much the minimum of it. A few people said they were a little bit uh, milder with their symptoms. They basically, they compared it to the flu. That That's what if, like one or two people did. I actually reached out to a number of people who have experienced it. And there's actually even one pharmacist, and these are all pharmacists and techs because I want to kind of aim for who's listening to this podcast. There's one pharmacist who actually got type one diabetes from it, not necessarily from COVID, but from complications of it. She got hospitalized, 
had no pre-existing conditions before that, was pretty much our age, maybe a couple years younger, late 20s, 30 years old, somewhere like around there. And she was hospitalized for often uh, somewhere around a month by the time it started and by the time, you know, she got kind of out of the hospital on her medications because the complications of COVID essentially blew out her pancreas. And so now she's type one diabetic and it's been really rough because I haven't even had to work with her as she comes back to work and you're just seeing the toll it physically takes on her because now it's, you know, she has to deal with this disease that came from it for life. And, you know, people look at this as, hey, you know, you either get it and you live or you get it and you die. And they keep looking at the mortality rate, which is important. Like, don't get me wrong. That's the, that's the worst case scenario. But there's this whole level of gray in between where you were pretty fortunate to only miss two weeks of work. She missed, I think it was a month, month and a half, and then now has to deal with all sorts of other chronic long-term complications for the rest of her life. And who knows, maybe it maybe it shortens their life. And then you're looking at that point that it didn't kill you, but it took years off your life. How do you measure that area? Is that something you've kind of worried about as you've recovered from this? To an extent, there is a congenital heart problem that runs uh, in my family. Unfortunately, I haven't really had to deal with it. And I don't know, I honestly don't know if I have it there. It hasn't popped up, but, you know, I noticed, you know, my heart rate normally runs in the low 60s, high 50s. And during I had a pulse oximeter, you know, I was checking it every day just to make sure, you know, I didn't need to go to the hospital. But it was, you know, it was running in the high 80s, low 90s. And, you know, I could feel my heart skipping beats like it does with this symptom, with this syndrome. So, you know, I'm planning on getting checked out by a cardiologist just to make sure that nothing, you know, nothing permanent has happened. But, right. you know, that is a concern. Yeah, you know, I've, it's just interesting, too, because like you said, you've you've run marathons and things like that. So there's no reason why something should necessarily bring this about other than maybe like a pre-existing, not pre-existing, a uh, congenital condition or something like that. And I've got things like that that kind of run in my family, but nothing that I've ever had caught when I've been, they've looked at me on exams and things like that. And obviously you were in the similar shape to me as somebody who can run marathons in the past. And so to have something like this bring possibly bring out stuff like that or make you at least concerned about it even is is pretty telling to what it can really do since it is basically a lot more of an inflammatory disease than we realized in the beginning than just a lung disease. Is there anything else kind of like symptom-wise? So you're looking when you got it, it was say early November-ish, and then you're back to work say mid to late November. Was there anything else about that circumstance that you think the listeners might want to know about who are who are in similar positions like us? Well, um, the big, the only lasting side effect, the only lasting effect of this disease that I that I know I've had is my sense of smell is almost completely gone. My uh, and it's affected my sense of taste as well. But my yeah. wife uh, loves mint M and M's, and I bought her I bought her a bag, and we we split it and. Um, you know, I couldn't taste the mint. And huh. also, you know, the mentioned, you know, I have a, a one-year-old. Uh, he's still in diapers. You know, I can't tell if he's got a dirty diaper now. You know, I have to rely on my wife or, you know, just actually seeing it to know that it's there. That could be so a blessing in disguise um, with that, though. Yeah, it's a blessing <laughs> in disguise, but I also don't want my son wallowing in filth all day. Yeah, no, I get that. <laughs> yeah, um, but, um, but yeah, other, you know, it's, that it, it's just, you know, I remember holding my son at one point, putting him down to bed and like, is this the last time I get to hold him? Because the mortality rate for people in our demographics is one in 500. But even still, you know, that that's in the back of your mind. Are you that one, even if you're healthy? And, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, I've, I've beaten it, but, you know, I feel bad for the one. 
yeah, you know, obviously there's other things that are probably much higher for people who are in our demographic. But at the same point, it just adds one more factor of could you be that one when the the, the wheel of life spins around again, basically. And I think that's, you know, yeah. something that, you know, you feel it because or you see it because you can feel it, basically. Is that kind of what you're alluding to? You know, I, I forget. Is it, There's something I think I've read. It may, I could be wrong. It's like medical student syndrome. You know, you study a disease and then <laughs> you deal with it. And then, you know, as you're studying this disease, you feel the symptoms of it, whether you actually have it or not. And that's, you know, I felt like, could this be, you know, could I be feeling the worst of this? And fortunately, you know, I had a very mild case. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, for, luckily you were pretty fortunate. It was mild, but it's, you know, the fact that it can still take a toll on you means it can really do a number to anybody. And the scary thing, like you said, is the contact tracing too of who just spread it to, right? And I'm glad that you took it upon yourself yeah. and made sure that your health board did too to really do the contact tracing because we've seen a lot of places are just so overwhelmed right now. They can't do that. And how many people might, you know, forget one place they went to, say they went to a gas station, they didn't think about that. You know, there's how many places do you go when you're just living life? And as much as you try to minimize the risk by wearing a mask, keeping a distance and doing stuff like that, you still really need to make sure to let those people know because who knows if they got it or not. Like we don't have a perfect way of stopping this yet, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's tough too, especially when you said neighbors, family, things like that because those are people you trust and you just you think they're doing the right thing and you th- you want you want to think you're doing the right thing when you're around them too, but sometimes it just life doesn't work out that way for for better or worse. So where do you think you most likely got it from? Do you think it was at work from in the pharmacy or somewhere else? Um, I think it was at work. I, I think I got it from another employee. Um, she tested positive around the same time as I did. And she's in much worse health. Uh, she's got uh, pulmonary issues, I think asthma, got a pacemaker, you know, all kinds of things. Mm. And she she had much more severe symptoms. Um, I mean, she's back at work now. She recovered fully. But she had, because of, you know, working in retail like we do, you know, there, how, who knows how many people – you know, she was in touch with, I was in touch with while we were shedding the virus. Yeah. And th- that's one thing that's like, I've kind of been saying from the beginning, and I, th- I think you're still in the Facebook group that I help kind of admin for with the farm staff COVID-19 support. And that was one of my big fears yeah. was, you know, I get pharmacies have to be open. I'm not even arguing with that. I think we have to be just to take care of people and for access for any number of reasons. But the fear is that if we start getting it, who do we spread it to? You know, think of the bottles we touch, the lid we touch, and all the things we touch, but then how much we have to talk to people too, right? Like in person, people can't hear, you know, the money handling back and forth, insurance cards, and, you know, the litany of things that just goes on and on and on. And the techs probably do as much or more of this than we do as pharmacists, unless you're at a really slow store. So when they get it, you know, I obviously get worried too. What kind of measures have you taken, say, before and then after your, uh, your illness? Can you kind of explain some of that, like what might have changed? Well, it's kind of been an odd situation. I um, actually, for the company I work for, I had worked at several different pharmacies kind of on a regular basis and then um, recently um, just moved to manage one of them. So I was worried, you know, that was at the beginning of the pandemic. I was working all over the place. Um, I was worried, you know, if I catch this, I could spread it to three or four different communities in a week. Fortunately, you know, I, I was able to avoid it during then, but then, you know, this the community that I'm currently working in, it's um, they had initially, the previous uh, manager had initially kind of turned the pharmacy into a fishbowl um, and put, um, <laughs> you know, plastic wrap all over the pharmacy. And basically, uh, my big concern is I wasn't as concerned about that as I was, you know, making sure that people would wear masks and stay distant. And unfortunately, that's it's very hard. That's a very difficult thing to enforce, especially 
you know, if you're in a hurry, um, you can't just say, oh, put on a mask and then I'll help you or whatever, because you've got so many different things that you have to be doing at the same time. And, you know, one just slips away. And sometimes it's that because this is all so new to us. Yeah, it's 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 tough when you're trying to do everything that you need to do as a pharmacist. Then there's all the, you know, basically the corporate mandated stuff you have to do of, hey, did you do this? Did you sign up for this? Did you get this? And then you have to add in this extra like third layer of, oh, don't forget to protect yourself from this, you know, worldwide pandemic communicable disease that's being spread all over the place. And people who are thinking it doesn't exist, what have you, aren't wearing masks and aren't following the guidelines laid out, which then puts us at a higher risk, which I know we've dealt with too. And in my state up here where I work, is that one of the kind of bang your head in the wall things you've been dealing with down there a little bit? Yeah, to an extent, you know, um, fortunately, I haven't encountered anybody lately who has said anything about it not existing. But as I'm sure you saw, whenever I had posted on Facebook that I was COVID positive and kind of went through my experience, my wife's uncle and my next door neighbor who I had grown up with consecutive days passed away from COVID. You know, my my neighbor had been dealing with Parkinson's for a long time. You know, she had she had some diseases, but my wife's uncle was other than being 77 in perfect health. You know, he was in an ICU for less than three weeks and he was gone. Wow. And that, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a hoax. You know, I, I understand, you know, some people, my, the way I want to say it is, you know, if you want to make it political about the economy or whatever, it's like the economy can recover, but you're all those, the 200 plus 250 plus thousand people who are now no longer with us because of this, they can't. And is it worth shutting everything down? I don't know. I don't have the answers to that. But there, something has to be done um, to try to prevent any more people from dealing with this. You know, we couldn't even go to either of these funerals. Yeah. And it's it's horrible. Yeah. And, you know, I actually forgot about that part of the post that you had shared that you did know two people passed away from it, which makes it scarier for you, especially when you get it yourself because it's, now it's super real. It was already real, but now it's like super real. And that's the point you hit there is exactly what I think so many healthcare professionals are trying to say, but aren't saying it quite right was that, you know, everything else can recover the stock market. You know, if you can go to bankruptcy, you can come back out of that. It doesn't matter. Like all that stuff can come back fine. You might not have the life you lived before. You know, the, the, the world isn't going to have the life ahead before period. But the thing of it is, is the more people that die, that's less people have a chance to come back. And that cannot be understated. The way you said that is just, really should put that in a context for any of the listeners is, you know, Hey, let's, if we have to shut down again, do whatever, that's fine. Like, you know, t- the government can take care of it. We can add more debt. We can do whatever. But there's, I think you said 250. I think now we just clipped 275. That's 275,000 people that can't come back. And if you look at that at a map, right? So I'm, I'm from Ohio. Some of the listeners are from Ohio. That's basically the entire city of Toledo proper wiped off the map. Every single person. Not not count the suburbs, but at least that's basically the whole city just wiped off the map. That's a lot of people and a lot of money and a lot of other stuff that when you're looking long term at the economy could have added to it. So I'm not going to go down that whole economy road like you said, but the economy, other things can and will recover. They bounce back. That's ebb and flow. But life isn't like that. And I don't think I can stress that enough to listeners. That's why we. That's why I wanted you on here was because I think that that really helps, you know, sell send home the point of you know. Think whatever you want to think, but it's not a joke. And when you're losing 275,000 people to this, that's that many people that cannot come back. Like that's that's a major metro area that can't come back and have any chance after, because of this disease. Yeah, it's not, you know, 
it, you know, how many people are going to be dealing with, um, either Hanukkah or Christmas without, with an empty chair or two, you know, that's not going to be an easy thing to deal with. You know, we, even if, even if you weren't going to spend the holidays with your families this year, how many people, you know, aren't going to be on your Christmas list this year because they're no longer with you. You know, what it's the human toll is so much more. That has to be your number one thought is how much worse you know, how much worse is that than, oh, my 401k dropped by 20%. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't care about that. You know, <laughs> I, I would give that to have my wife's uncle back. I would give that to yeah. have my neighbor back. That's fine. Money, money can always come back. It's, you know, lives, lives are permanent. Yeah. And I, you know, working in healthcare, working in retail, we don't see as much death as a lot of other healthcare workers do, at least not as much in our face. Like we don't see what the the OR doctor sees the ER doctor, stuff like that. We still deal with it, but it's almost like weird with us because we get to know the person over a long period of time and then they're just no longer there. And sometimes when you get those phone calls, it really hits home because you knew that person for so long. But, you know, that's what that's what happens with death and that's what happens with COVID. So to kind of move the podcast along off this little bit yep. darker, darker path we've taken here. Yeah. Um, yeah. When the vaccine comes out, do you plan on getting it? Um, yeah, I actually plan on getting it. Um, in my state, I believe that healthcare workers and pharmacists are going to be part of the first wave as long as, you know, there's enough vaccines for us, as well as long-term care residents. But then I plan on administering it to, um, you know, going out into the community, whether doing it just in my pharmacy, if we're able to, you know, uh, take care of storage, or if uh, if I'm going out to long-term care facilities or clinics or where wherever it may be you know I, I plan on being an advocate for this vaccine as well yeah you said some kind of leading up that the illness was so bad any side effects from the vaccine can't even come close to that is that kind of what you think based on what i dealt with my my, my illness was pretty mild and i would deal with that for two days you know but for someone who hasn't who's not normally sick you know they might think it's the end of the world <laughs> but um you know i i i don't think that the um I don't think that the vaccine side effects by and large are going to be worse than the illness. I mean, the vaccine, I don't believe has caused, I haven't checked the studies, but I don't believe it's really caused any death, you know, and the virus certainly has. Yeah. The only death that I know of that I read that saw that happened in the studies was somebody in the placebo group. So, you know, of the 70, 80,000 people in the two Pfizer and the uh, Moderna studies, only one person died there in the placebo group. I think that's key to remember here because they just, you know, yeah. got a placebo. They got nothing. And so that's probably just a statistical anomaly of life happened. And then when you look at the the other stats on it, it looks like they stopped 100% of severe cases, which is your fatalities and the things we were talking about earlier. And But the one thing that definitely happens is it looks like everyone will be sick for a day or two, maybe on the first one, but definitely on the second one, just because that immune system ramp up. So like you said, maybe you're going to have to deal with it for a day or two, but that's not too bad. Some people get that from the flu shot anyway, and that's why they say the flu shot causes the flu, which it doesn't. But, you know, if that's all you got to deal with to help, you know, possibly save a, just save one life extra. And that's something I think we can all suck up for a day or two. And if I remember correctly, a lot of the major pharmacy chains are, or at least a lot of the major healthcare organizations are going to give, the per, when you get that shot, they're going to give you the day off paid from my understanding. So that could be a, a good major step going forward. Is that what you've heard down by where you work? I haven't really heard anything uh, that way, or as far as that goes. I know um, I know that we're taking steps to administer it, but I haven't heard of you know anything as far as like the 
I guess, the human resources side of it, you know. Gotcha. But I think encouraging people to get the vaccine is absolutely a good idea. I, I mean, I think that's how we get back to normal or back to, you know, pre-2020 normal, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't hear that solidified in stone. That was more of something I heard from a, an inside voice, but it wasn't put in stone yet. So don't quote me on that. But that is something that I heard was going out there, which I think makes sense because, like you said, hey, especially in healthcare, look how many lives we touch daily and we don't want to spread it to them. So, hey, if it takes one day off to stop that, I think that's just kind of like the right thing to do. You can always make up an extra day of work later. It's not like the biggest thing. And hopefully they can, hopefully they realize the money's worth it too. So they're not losing employees left and right as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> how do you think, or what do you think could make pharmacies safer during this pandemic? Since now that I like to think you have a little more of an expert eye since you went through it and you can be like, Ooh, I didn't think about this. You know, what do you think can make it a little bit safer in, in a setting like a retail pharmacy or even a hospital pharmacy, if you happen to think of it like that? I mean, early on in this, you know, we obviously had the PPE shortage, but we also didn't, you know, we, I mean, I remember in March, we didn't have the studies that masks were working but right now, you know, that overwhelmingly shows that I think, you know, empowering the employees to enforce these mask mandates, um, even just having, you know, just having someone open up, you know, at the front door saying, you know, you need to put your mask on, you need to put your mask on, you know, walked into grocery stores where they have that. And I get it, you know, we don't have as big of a staff at, in most pharmacies as you do in, say, a Walmart or Target. But, right. you know, I think empowering that and, you know, staying by your employees when if they if they remove someone from the store for refusing to comply, I think is a great step forward in terms of, you know, both you empower your employees, but then they also feel more loyalty to you as a company because they feel that you're looking out for them. Yeah. I was just actually listening to something from the, uh, there's an NPR podcast out there about the CEO from Zappos and how he was like a customer service guy. He didn't really care about shoes, but he founded one of the most successful online shoe companies. And it was kind of the same, same idea I thought really applied to pharmacy was if you looked to take care of yourself and help protect your people, that's the biggest thing you can do. And if you look at that from a time like COVID, that's what everyone should be doing. They should really be enforcing this stuff and really putting, making all the signage super visible and all the, I don't want to say putting barriers up, but putting things out there to really, you know, kind of force and encourage people to, to do the right thing so that we don't spread this. And you know what? For the most part, people are going to get it. It's just trying to keep that last 10 to 15% of people plus or minus doing the right behaviors here so that we can keep people protected and you know as a pharmacy to keep us protected so we can help keep help people stay healthy and get their medications and get proper advice and things like that when they need it oh yeah absolutely um you know it's my pharmacy had to shut down for a day because we didn't have anybody to work um one of my shifts when i was gone so you know i told my employees you know if you want to enforce if you're able to you know speak with someone about putting a mask on you know you want to frame it that way because We've already had to deal with it. We don't want to deal with it again. And uh, that's that's the way we stop this thing or at least slow it down. Yeah, and we've seen that at my store where I work and all the stores that are pretty much around me too, uh, up here in Ohio where it was getting pretty bad early on. Not New York early, but earlier. And we've seen a lot of the stores shut down. And then we see people come over to our store. And you know, there's certain things like control medications that you can't transfer if there isn't a pharmacist at that store. There's all these other hurdles that start popping up that cause problems left and right. You know, so there's a kid's seizure medicine that's a controlled substance. Now I can't transfer. What do you do? Do I just fake it and then break the law so that that way I know it's the right thing to do for that person because they're out and they need it? I mean, there's so many of these things that pop up, right? That you're just trying to, you know, as a pharmacist, address and take care of them. 
But when you start seeing stores shut down, now we have major issues that are kind of bubbling up from that. Have have you seen that or that happen with your store at all? Well, I didn't really, unfortunately, I didn't know that my store had shut down the day that it did. You know, I wasn't really kept in the loop because I was officially put on leave. So I guess from, from there, you know, you know, I've had to deal with that. I I used to work uh, as an overnight pharmacist and we, we dealt with a lot of the same issues, you know, Oh, your Xanax is filled at store in Kentucky. Well, I can't transfer that over because it's 3 a.m. and um, there's no pharmacist there for me to speak to. So, you know, there there are a lot of issues, legal issues with that. And unfortunately, you know, the law isn't, you know, the law isn't framed to say that, oh, yeah, you can you normally can't transfer Xanax, but we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So you can you know, do that. <laughs> Right. Yeah. They, uh, we're seeing a lot of that now. The legislators, at least in, in my state, I've seen are trying to adopt some sort of legislation, not around pharmacy, but just in general to include in times of a pandemic or infectious disease outbreak and stuff like that to kind of make them fit a little better there. What else do you want to share with the listeners about either your experience or, you know, stuff like that with COVID? You know, I, I've shared, I've shared quite a bit. I don't, the only thing that I'd really like to say is, you know, even anecdotally masks work um i i could have just holed up in a bedroom and let my wife take care of the one-year-old the entire time i was we were quarantined at home but you know that would have that would have just been cool to her too and so you know every time i was around i was around a little guy uh, i had a mask on i stayed i stayed distant from my wife and neither one of them got sick so just anecdotally it works um, you know, it's not comfortable, but it, you know, it's what, what I had to do. Otherwise, you know, I couldn't see my son and that just wasn't uh, feasible. You know, with all the luxuries you have of the modern day that make our life easier, if wearing a mask is your biggest burden, it's not that bad to bear. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's, it's nothing. I mean, I wear one at the gym and it doesn't impede me in any way. And I, I don't understand the anti-maskers saying that, impedes your oxygen level, but it keeps the virus in. Like you, you realize that um, oxygen can get through these masks, right? <laughs> it's, um, you're, you're trying to stop water droplets to carry the virus, which are significantly larger than oxygen than O2 molecules. Yeah. And it's funny because I'm, I'm the crazy person who will actually wear one of those quote unquote high altitude masks when I go running sometimes in the summer to make it harder. If I'm going to train for a race to really build my lung capacity up, and those are a lot worse to breathe in than these little masks. So when people tell me, oh, oxygen doesn't get through, I'm like, really? You can go wear my Bane mask and go see how it is when I go running with this thing. It's a lot worse, trust me. And, you know, people just, they, they don't get that because they're not, they're not used to it, I guess. So just a little bit different yeah. anecdote on my end too. All right. So before we end the podcast, there's two things I want to, I ask everybody who comes on. If you can change one thing about pharmacy, what would it be? Uh, I could go on for a long time, but I know we don't have all that much time. But I, I uh, the big thing I would probably, um, I would probably find some way to uh, do away with PBMs. They have caused, especially the past couple of years, um, caused so many independent pharmacies to shut down, and you know, it basically all the power is slowly being consolidated in this profession and just in this industry by. Uh, pharmacy benefits managers and um, you know I fortunately uh, when I was in pharmacy school had the opportunity to have a rotation at one of them and from my experience they they just don't care the people who are there don't care about the patients they just care about the bottom line and that's not if you're in healthcare, it can't be that way 
yeah, PBMs are obviously a recurring thing that comes up here with that part. But I, I like the way you phrased it too about just how they work. And kind of the way I look at that is that's also not just hours cut and hour, but an hours lost. That's also jobs lost, and that's local jobs lost to a specific area that just keeps filtering back to wherever that PBM is. But for the jobs that are lost, it doesn't equal that many hours or that many you know dollars in that area either. It's it's almost like a negative sum, not even a zero sum in this case. Oh yeah, and you know it's um, I remember and now this is dating myself a little bit, but. Um, the CEO of Medco said something about the inaccuracy of pharmacists like 10 years ago. And it's like, you really have this, this much contempt for the people who, you know, pay your, <laughs> you know, help, help you accrue your bonuses and your, you know, your seven or eight figure salary, you know, that's, that's just absurd. And, um, you know, I was really put off by that. So uh, needless to say, whenever anything comes up about PBMs, you know, Medco is my, one of my number one go-tos is ones that <laughs> I don't uh, like, yeah. even though they're not around anymore. It's probably a good reason you can go after them and they're not around so they can't come after you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, if you could change one law about pharmacy, federal or state, what would it be and why? You know, I'm thinking about this as a, as a law and I'm licensed in two different states and I see the, I see the contrast there, but this might not be a law so much as I would want to see increased accreditation for both pharmacy schools and pharmacists. Um, you know, about 20 years ago, there was a big pharmacist shortage. So uh, as you well know, and the profession just got more and more lucrative because, you know, all these pharmacies are throwing all kinds of money at uh, pharmacists to take their jobs and just, just so they could stay open. But the schools, you know, schools opened up more positions, more schools opened up, and suddenly, rather than being such a massive shortage now, I believe that last I checked, it was around the 20% um, overage of pharmacists coming out of school, more than demand. And with all these independent pharmacies and everything shutting down, you know, there are no jobs for these people. And right. I, I feel terrible for them. But I think we need to really um, be stricter on accrediting colleges, but also for us who have graduated, I graduated uh, around a decade ago, you know, does that mean that I have the same knowledge now that I did 10 years ago or does it mean it's current? Not that I, I may, I probably, you know, I probably have kept up pretty well, but some people, you know, with a 15 in the states that I'm licensed in, it's 15 hours of CE a year. You know, that's not enough to keep up with what's going on in our profession. And I would like yeah. to see more, more, um, you know, stricter uh, continuing end requirements um, just so that we can hold ourselves more accountable and so that, you know, when we're able to provide these services and show, especially now, how essential we are, that we are as, as knowledgeable as we prepare, as we say that we are. And, it's, you know, I think that that's I think that's a realistic thing that we could do, but it obviously wouldn't go over well with a lot of our profession as well. Yeah, no, I'm actually fully on board with you on that one because when you look at the trajectory of the pay scale, even when I graduated, which is only a year or two ahead of you, you know, th that pay rate now, given that it's now the pay rate has went down from there and that inflation has went up, you're looking at like a 30, 40 plus percent pay cut in you know, your overall pay ratio versus the cost of goods and things like that. So that's that's a huge decrease over time where that's probably why we're seeing a lot of places are getting rid of some of their higher paid pharmacists by almost any means necessary 
which I'm sure you can attest to, to some bit that maybe where you work, but I know I've seen that in various settings up here. So, Hey, Dr. Barnes, thanks for coming on the podcast with me. I appreciate your time and, you know, glad to hear you're doing better. And again, I'm sorry to hear for your loss at the same time. Well, thank thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks again for having me. Listeners, if you have any stories, please feel free to, to share them with me. If you need help get them out or you need any sort of like help, I can do whatever I can for you. I'm not legal expert, but I do have a lot of stories and some people that I can usually connect you with if you do need some help with things like that. So otherwise, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. Thank you.